Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Ray Atchison, who is the director of the Disarmament Program at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, as well as the author of the books Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, and Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages. Thanks for joining us, Ray. Thanks for having me on the show. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and what it is that you do as the leader of their program, Reaching Critical Will? Absolutely. So WILP, as the acronym is known, was founded actually in 1915 during World War I. So it's a very old organization. And it was founded by women who were from countries that were at war with each other and neutral countries. And they gathered in the Netherlands, in The Hague, and had basically an anti-war summit in the middle of the war. And they sort of found that through their discussions and and investigations that the main impediment to peace at that time, as it is still today, is really the private profits that accrue from war. So the war profiteering, the war industry that makes the weapons that is incentivized to have as much war as possible in as many places as possible and to make profits from arms trading and, and arms manufacturing. So that was sort of the beginnings of WILP. And today it's an organization that has national sections in about 40 countries around the world. And it also has an international staff team. And that's what I'm part of. So I lead the team called Reaching Critical Will, which works on a variety of disarmament issues. We were originally founded to work mostly on nuclear weapons, but we now are part of campaigns trying to prevent the development of autonomous weapon systems. We do work to try and end the arms trade. We take a feminist and a queer look at militarism at large and try and work with other activists as well as with governments at the United Nations, academics around the world to build norms and international law that can help us constrain this profiteering from war and engagement in war and disarm or abolish or prohibit weapon systems. I mentioned at the top of the show, you're the author of Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy. It's hard to imagine what cylindrical objects that explode and just cause problems for everyone could have to do with the patriarchy, but perhaps you could explain. Absolutely. So 
nuclear weapons, which is what that book is focused on specifically, it kind of looks at the the negotiation process and the, the cultural norm shifting process that we built up to prohibit nuclear weapons through an international treaty at the United Nations, which we did achieve in, in 2017 with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So that, that process was, you know, about a 10 year process. But of course, the anti-nuclear movement has been going since the dawn of the nuclear age in 1945. And what we've seen in all that time is really the culture of nuclear weapon possession, the ideas behind nuclear deterrence theory, you know, this idea that by having nuclear weapons, certain countries can prevent war or protect themselves from invasion. What we found is that so much of these cultural ideas and myths about the bomb are really bound up in concepts of strength through power and violence and you know, being willing to use weapons that are essentially genocidal weapons, because it only takes one of them to wipe out an entire city. These these weapons that the idea that they would be used for security and protection, it's very masculinized concepts in the sense of, of power through violence and communicating with each other, organizing our world around the ability to commit massive genocidal violence. And so I don't mean you know, masculinized in the sense of, oh, men this, women that. I just mean in the sense that our societies and cultural norms tend to be gendered in a way that associates a certain type of, of strength and masculine power with violence, with weapons, with tools of harm, as opposed to pursuing global governance or international relations that is more cooperative based on interdependence, collaboration amongst countries, amongst peoples, which tends to be more feminized. And so what we have in our disarmament diplomacy really is those who do promote disarmament and want to prohibit weapons or want to restrict the arms trade in some way, they're actually treated as if they're being emotional. You know, they don't they don't have the tools to contend with the hard security issues in the world. And I'm putting all of this in quotation marks, of course. And they get ridiculed and sort of treated as if they are naive and irrational. And so all of this is very highly gendered. We can think about this in the way that it impacts us in our daily lives and our communities. And so it plays out in a very similar way in the international sphere. And so I framed the writing of that book, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, to really kind of unpack some of that and look at the reality of nuclear weapons, how actually they do cause harm, not just when they were used by the United States in Japan in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. But in the 2000 tests that have been performed since then, nuclear bombs actually exploded, including in Australia on Aboriginal land by the British, across the Pacific by the French and the United States, on U.S. Indigenous land as well. The Western Shoshone Nation in the state known as Nevada in the U.S. is the most bombed nation on earth. They had almost 900 nuclear weapon tests performed on their land. And so all of that has created catastrophic harm around the world, mostly within Indigenous Aboriginal communities. And so we've tried through the process of banning nuclear weapons to really elevate those perspectives and have them at the forefront of the international legal work going on on these issues, because that's the real story of nuclear weapons, as opposed to these theories about deterrence and, and geostrategic stability and all of that, which I think in this moment with, with Russia and Ukraine, we can clearly see that nuclear weapons have not prevented war. And in fact, they've helped facilitate 
or Russia to invade Ukraine and, and pretend that it can, it can do so without repercussion because of nuclear weapons. So in that sense, they've, they've really worked strongly against all of the theories that the, the nuclear advocates have, have tried to sell us for many years. Right in the book about how, you know, people were advocating for disarmament depicted as irrational and hysterical, whereas people advocating for armament, you know, are these rational actors that mutually assured destruction, literally mad. Could you speak a little bit about why that's really an irrational position? The idea that we would have 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world, which is what we have today. At the height of the Cold War, we had over 70,000 nuclear weapons. So there has been some disarmament, but it's mostly been retirement of old systems. So this idea that we need 13,000 bombs that can each on their own destroy entire cities and render the land, the water, our, our bodies, animals' bodies completely devastated for generations is just, it's just such a, it's such an irrational theory of security that this is what is going to provide security as opposed to getting rid of these weapons and no one having them and them being prohibited and completely eliminated. The thing is, is that we know how to disarm. As I said, we've drawn down from, from over 70,000 nuclear weapons at the height of the Cold War. And so the process of disarming is entirely technically possible with the, with what we have in the world today. We could absolutely be disarmed within 10 years, no problem, even in a very safe, verified process for, for all the countries involved. It's, it's just not that hard. And so there's no technical obstacle for us to get rid of nuclear weapons. And there's sometimes arguments that, oh, now that they exist, they can never not exist. But that's true about everything in our world, right? And so we can decide collectively, just as we're trying to decide right now that fossil fuels are you know, going to kill us if we continue to use them and going to render the planet completely uninhabitable. And so it's the same with nuclear weapons. So we need to make that choice and, and do that work. And it's very feasible. And this, But this idea that we are so beholden to and that we're trained to believe that somehow these wep- these are weapons that are meant never to be used. It just doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to it. And there's been so many accidents or miscalculations and different mishaps over the years, most of which we don't even know about. But thanks to investigative journalists and and whistleblowers such as Daniel Ellsberg and and the work of others, we do know that so much now of what has gone on over the years. And it's just, it's, it's inevitable that nuclear weapons will be used if we continue to possess them and to hold them in such esteem as, as a deterrent. And it, it's more countries right now, there's only nine countries in the world that have them. But if we keep saying that nuclear weapons are the ultimate guarantee of security as the world becomes increasingly volatile and challenging, if we continue to invest in militarism, at the expense of everything else that we need to solve, then we're going to see more countries being interested in the pursuit of nuclear weapons too. So there's many reasons to get rid of these things, and we need to do it as soon as possible. Passage of the Nuclear Weapons Treaty in 2017 was significant. I have two questions in relation to that. One is what has happened since, and secondly, what's been the reaction and the position of the Australian, UK and US governments to the treaty? So since 2017, when the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was adopted in New York with 122 countries voting for its adoption, really led by the Global South as an initiative. The United States and Australia 
Russia, the other nuclear armed states, and some of the U.S. allies like Australia, they did not participate in those negotiations. They have continued to say they will not join the treaty. But of course, these are countries where we can you know, help facilitate our governments to change their minds and join the treaty. But since then, we've had many countries sign and ratify it, so make it domestic law. We've seen city councils around the world, including in Australia, many, many different local councils and city councils saying that they support the treaty and want the Australian government to join. And we've seen this throughout the US as well, throughout other nuclear armed states in the UK and many others. And so lots of pressure mounting. We've seen a lot of divestment from nuclear weapons also since the treaty was adopted in 2017. So we have a campaign called Don't Bank on the Bomb that ICANN manages, and that is focused on getting city council funds or pension funds or even just your own personal funds divested from nuclear weapon producing companies. So we've done the investigation to find out which companies are involved in the manufacture of these bombs and which financial institutions are giving them money. And then we encourage them to stop funding these companies or we'll withdraw our money or we'll have our pension funds withdrawn from from these institutions. And so that work has resulted in billions of dollars already being divested from nuclear weapons. And that will continue to have an economic impact as that grows. So there's lots of momentum building. But the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom are the three countries you mentioned. They have not yet joined the treaty. Australia sent an observer to the first meeting of states' parties. So this is sort of all the countries that have signed and ratified the treaty gathered last year for the first time to you know, look at how they're implementing it and what challenges are ahead. And they'll be meeting again this year in New York. So Australia did set an observer to that meeting and has indicated some interest in participating in certain things related to the treaty. And the current government has... Um, indicated on paper in the past that it will sign and ratify the treaty. It has not done so since being in power. And so ICANN's work here in Australia is largely focused on ensuring that the Labour Party fulfills that that promise. The Australian government has also committed itself to procuring nuclear-powered submarines, seemingly as part of a, um, a broader tilt towards China. What do you have to say about or what can we understand from this action and from the AUKUS Treaty as a whole? It's a wildly irrational agreement on so many levels. The The amount of money that is being committed to this project, you know, almost $400 billion, is a lot more than what was initially indicated and is certainly going to face cost overruns, as these projects always do. It involves spending money in other countries to build submarines. So this idea of Australian jobs being created it's just it doesn't hold water when it's stacked against the actual, you know, the details that we do know about the agreement. And there's still a lot of missing agree uh, details. We know that corporations like BAE Systems are going to profit wildly from this deal. At the meantime, Australia is contending with the fierce implications of climate change. There are folks dealing with poverty. There are folks dealing with healthcare crises. There's so many things that need to be addressed in Australia, as in every other country, that that money could be spent on basically anything else, and it would be better for the Australian people. The, the fear-mongering that has been built up around 
the AUKUS alliance in terms of, you know, this pivot to China and China being the new big bad and, and the, the sort of rhetoric and threats that have been mounting are really provocative in a region that is already facing tensions. And so rather than figuring out how to build again this cooperative world order, we're investing again, doubling down into the militarism as if militarism has solved anything in the world. Instead, we've just created more and more violence, more and more weapons. The weapons companies have profited wildly. Everyone else is impoverished by this, but they keep going to the same tools. They keep asserting that more violence, more weapons will be more security, even though we have seen time and time again, that this is just the opposite is absolutely true. So AUKUS is very problematic. There is a lot of action from anti-nuclear groups across Australia to prevent these nuclear submarines from being built, to prevent this money from being wasted on these awful tools, to prevent more radioactive materials being introduced into the oceans, to prevent the nuclear waste dumps that are going to have to be built in order to contend with the highly enriched uranium that is being used in these submarines. So there's all kinds of aspects to this struggle and it's encouraging to see people already mobilizing. The trade unions have, have been vocal about this. Other activists are, are getting engaged and, and getting communities involved where the nuclear submarines might be ported or where the nuclear waste dumps might might be sited. And so there's going to be work to, to come on this in the years ahead, and there's lots of activity to already join. Ray, in the past few weeks, we've seen various tech leaders come out and put put a call out to pump the brakes on the rise of artificial intelligence. I was wondering what you thought about that call, especially given your involvement in the Stop Killer Robots organization. Have, have these tech leaders ever asked for people to maybe pump the brakes on killer robots? Yes. So we actually have a lot of success working with tech workers, mostly within companies who don't want to work on weapon systems, who want to be developing technology that actually helps society, not technology to kill people. And so what we've seen within the Stop Killer Robots campaign is a rise of voices from across many different sectors. So the scientific community, the artificial intelligence and, and other tech worker community, faith leaders as well, student organizing and activism, disarmament activists, of course, are engaged. It's just a very, it's sort of the messaging and the, the, the relatability of the, of the campaign is so clear because the idea of weaponizing artificial intelligence and autonomous systems just strikes people as morally and ethically bankrupt, very scary and completely unnecessary. And so. It's it's actually a campaign that we've managed to generate quite a bit of public attention to. But what one of our main goals is, is to have governments at the United Nations preemptively prohibit these types of weapons from ever being developed. We're losing momentum in that realm because the weapons are being developed right now. And we're starting to see some weapons with autonomous capabilities already being deployed. We've seen a little bit of in the in Ukraine from Russia. We've seen a little bit of it from Israel as well. And so we know that these systems are underway. The United States, Russia, Israel, India, Japan, South Korea, and Australia are some of the main countries that are blocking progress at the UN for a, a prohibition treaty. And so that's, that's the diplomatic work that's going on. But in the meantime, what we really need is more tech workers speaking out and, and organizing within their companies to prevent contracts from being made with, with the governments in order to build weapon systems based on these technologies. 
Uh, Ray, you've also been looking at the Cop City project in the United States. Could you, for our listeners who might not be familiar with that, could you tell us a little bit about what it is and why we need to stop Cop City? So Cop City is a police training facility that the city council of Atlanta, Georgia, has approved to be built in Atlanta. Construction has not yet been able to start, but they did approve the building of it in 2021. And so back at that time, folks were organizing to prevent the city council from approving it, and since then have been very active to stop it. And the reasons why there's been such a mobilization is there's many issues at play here. So one, Because it's a police training facility, the reason they call it Cop City is because they're actually going to build a mock city where they'll have, you know, a school and houses and a community center. And they're going to be training police to use military equipment to conduct urban warfare. There's going to be a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. They'll be trained on all the latest military technologies. So it's just a really incredibly violent training center for police in a country where we're already seeing massive violence by the police towards the population, almost a police shooting every day, police shooting civilians. And so this is obviously a provocation, and especially in the city of Atlanta, in a county, a part of Atlanta that is majority black. And so we already, of course, have the racial discrimination and the white supremacy of the police forces in the United States. And so to build it in this location is very affronting as well. They're also planning to bulldoze almost 100 acres of the Wilani Forest, which is known as one of the lungs of Atlanta. And so Atlanta has some forest land on its outskirts. And this is a forest that's extremely important for mitigating climate change and for keeping temperatures somewhat cool in Atlanta during the summertime. It's already a very hot city. If you destroy 100 acres of forest land, that is going to be much, much worse. So it's going to affect the climate. It's going to have an impact in terms of local health. There's also a gentrification issue because they're already starting to build housing for police to come in to train. So it's not going to be just for Atlanta police or just for Georgia police. It'll be police all across the United States will go there to train. And there's even going to be an international component. And so police will be brought in from other countries to to train in Cop City as well. So there is a lot of issues going on. It has mobilized a lot of attention. When they started organizing to stop Cop City, it was doing all the things that you do initially, you know, the the city council petitions and hearings and testimonies and banners and educational events and all of those things. They did that for a year. But then when city council approved the permits for the construction to begin, folks some folks took up residence in the forest. So the forest defenders have been living in the trees. And at different times, the cops have gone in and tried to clear out the forest. And on one of these occasions, they murdered one of the forest defenders. And so Tortuguita was living in the forest and they are a nonviolent defender. And the Georgia State Police said that Tortuguita shot at them. And so they returned fire and killed them. But what we have heard from the other forest defenders who were there was that it was actually friendly fire and a cop shot another cop and that resulted in the firing on Tortuguita. And the autopsies that have been performed, the independent autopsies have found this as well. And they were shot 13 times. They were sitting on the ground with their legs crossed and their hands raised in the air when they were shot. And this is the first time that 
U.S. police have killed an environmental activist. So this is an escalation. The other thing that has happened as well is now 42 people have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism for being part of the forest defense. And some were arrested more recently um, for being at a music festival that was part of the Stop Cop City actions that happened in March. And they, the cops did a mass arrest and have charged multiple people with domestic terrorism just for being there and being part of this movement. They have sent in SWAT teams to prevent people from handing out flyers on the street of Atlanta. They have harassed journalists. So it's really escalating there and a lot of police state tactics being deployed. And so it's an area to watch as well in terms of how uh, the law will deal with these charges of, of domestic terrorism, because that will be very important moving forward in the United States and likely globally in terms of how we can protest and how we can dissent, especially in this time of, of mass militarization, of police brutality, of climate change, of poverty and inequalities. The instinct from the police is to, is to militarize further and to take people's rights away. And so Stock Cop City is, is just a, a thing to watch and to get involved in and support as much as possible in solidarity. I was struck by the fact that a number of those charges over domestic terrorism related to people, you know, having illegal advice, phone numbers written down, that was considered to be, you know, evidence that they'd gone there intending to meet, commit crimes. That just seems like a, a dystopian direction to be heading in. Absolutely. I mean, every protest that, that I go to, I have a legal number written on my arm or a friend's number, you know, it's like, that's, that's what you do when you're, when you're at, at a protest. And so, yeah, and it was also people were wearing black and they had mud on their shoes. Those were two other things that the cops said proved they were guilty of, of the domestic terrorism. And so there was a piece of construction equipment that was lit on fire. And so also to be that alone, even if people did participate in that, still shouldn't result in a domestic terrorism charge because legally a certain number of people are supposed to be killed before the charge of terrorism can be applied. And so we're, we are talking about property destruction here. And I think that's another interesting aspect of all of this is that the project is being funded by private companies, Delta Airlines, the Waffle House, you know, there's all kinds of companies that are giving money to this. And so we can really see it as part of the sort of capitalist dystopian police state that is being built up that private capital is looking to protect its interests in the world ahead. And so this is how they're doing it is 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 funding the police to to suppress dissent. Along with honoring the memory of Totigueta, there's obviously many groups and reasons to stop Cop City. In your analysis of the situation in Atlanta and in your general writings, you argue for and speak from a an intersectional feminist perspective on war, war-making and so on. I'm wondering, if, Ray, you can explain why you think that's so critical to understanding the issues, the many issues that you analyse and what should be incorporated into others' understanding of these matters. Intersectionality, feminism and, you know, these frameworks of, of analysis and, and discourse are very, very important. Intersectionality really, all it really refers to is that is acknowledging that we all face 
overlapping and different types of oppression based on who we are and how we are treated in society. And so, you know, a a queer black woman woman is going to have a different experience than a straight white man. We're going to have different experiences based on religion and how that overlaps with our our race or our sexual orientation, disability, geography, citizenship, you know, status of refugee asylum seeker versus a citizen. So all of these things overlap and intersect and create different experiences for people. And it's important that we have that in our minds and our, in our understanding when we are looking at structures of state violence, because we need to understand that our experience with, with say, police or the carceral system or borders is entirely different from somebody else's. And that also that those structures themselves need to be defunded, need to be abolished, need to be taken apart and instead building up communities, societies of care and equality that are for everybody, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your race is, no matter your age, your ability, your sexuality. So that's sort of the the, the benefit of having an intersectional analysis is that it helps us understand oppression and then it helps us overcome oppression and understand how to build different systems and structures that work for more people. Ray, how does the current rise in anti-trans sentiment impact upon abolitionism and what role does that anti-trans sentiment play in reproducing a world of states and state violence? That's a great question. So yeah, in the US, there's currently about 400 pieces of anti-trans legislation going forward. And if anybody is curious in, about learning more about that, Erin Reed is a great person to follow. She's on Twitter and has a Substack. And is really just tracking all of the court cases, state level court cases going on and local efforts to ban gender affirming care or ban the use of bathrooms to criminalize parents or to criminalize teachers for using correct pronouns in school. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is happening and it really embeds this gender essentialism that we've tried to move away from, right? In our, in, in many different societies over the last many years, getting away from these rigid understandings of men and women and the roles that men and women need to perform within society, the social reproduction of labor, gendered labor roles and normative understandings of what folks can contribute to society. So we've, broken down a lot of that over the years and become much more expansive in our understanding of gender and of sex and of sexuality. And so there's really a move to repress this and to retrench us back into the old narratives that are very essentialist and very, very binary. And that works to states' advantage because states like things to be very clear cut. They like to have binary things that they can hold. They can oppress easier along very clear lines. So the liberation of queer people, of trans people, of women at large can be threatening to a state that is interested in controlling its population and and leading through repression, which many countries are increasingly, including in the United States. And so it's, again, it's it relates also, of course, in the US to the bans on abortion restricting uh, the reproductive health of, of people who are pregnant. And it relates to the book banning that we're seeing in many different states in the U.S. right now, the banning the discussion of 
critical race theory, which is essentially the, you know, any discussion about slavery and the history of race relations and injustice within the United States is being is being banned in some schools. Books that deal with queer identities or black identities and histories are being banned in school. Certainly books around abolition and dismantling of the carceral system are, are being banned as well in different school settings and libraries. And so there's this wider trend that the anti-trans legislation and, and sentiment and violence is all directed towards as well. It's all bound up with each other. Right. Well, um, rights are being abolished, which may not be a good thing. Um, you've also written about abolitionism in a broader sense in one of your books. Can you uh, briefly identify what it is or the major institutions you're critiquing in that book and why you think we should we might be better off getting rid of them? So abolition as a concept really comes in the US discourse anyway. It really comes from the movement to abolish slavery. And so folks today that use the word abolition are both trying to deconstruct a system that is causing harm and then rebuild something that is much more equal and provides care for more people. And so within my book, Abolishing State Violence, I look at seven different structures of violence. There are many more, but these are the seven structures of state violence that I looked at. So that included police, prisons, surveillance, borders, war, nuclear weapons, and capitalism as a whole. And of course, capitalism is, is underpinning all of these other structures of state violence as well. But I did want to focus specifically on it too. And so the, the book is looking at the relationship between many of these structures of state violence. So the corporations that might be involved in building nuclear weapons and building the border wall uh, on the US-Mexico border, or surveillance companies that are involved in weapons manufacturing, as well as border surveillance, as well as police surveillance technologies, looking at the connections between the ideologies as well that are really rooted in a lot of these structures of violence, like the concept of deterrence, which in, you know, for nuclear weapons is that these weapons of incredible violence prevent war or with policing, it's that and, and, and the carceral system, it's that harsh sentences will somehow deter crime. And this, and with borders, it's forcing people to, to take extreme measures in order to reach safety that means that you know, they will die in the desert or drown at sea. All of these structures create violence in order to prevent what they see as what the state sees as disorder or or a threat to its control over the population and, and over the world. And so those are the structures that, that I've focused on. And I've found a lot of hope as well in the relationship between these structures, because there are many ways that abolitionists working on any of these can be in solidarity with folks working on any of the others. And so the more that we can build our movements collectively and understand how our work on one issue relates to work on another issue, and what are the systems that we need to build in place of these structures of violence in order to provide care for people and for the planet, the, the sort of broader analysis and understanding and solidarity that we have across this work, the better off that we'll be. And we are actually seeing a lot more of this in the US context, but I think also transnationally, this understanding of, of collaboration and solidarity that gives me a lot of hope in continuing this work. Well, Ray, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you're at rayatchison.com. And while it still stands, you are at Atchison Ray on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. 
See you later. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.